Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. Some people say it's a peaceful way to die when you drown. They talk about a calmness, almost a high, about moving towards the light. Don't believe them. You want to know what it's like? Listen to those who were drowning and were saved at the end who were dragged from the water and survived. It's not peaceful. It's lonely. It's desperate. You keep thinking you can breathe, but you can't. You feel a weight on your chest that you can't stop. You try to fight it, but it pushes you and pushes you. You come up, you hyperventilate, you suck in more water. Your vocal cords go into spasm, block your throat and airways. You just want to breathe, suck in big lungfuls of air, of space. You can't. You can feel the water forcing into your nose, your ears, your mouth. This weight on you all the time, on your chest, in your stomach, in your head. You know you're dying when you're drowning. And it's silent when it comes. You scream and no noise comes out. So it's hard to find any consolation when Jeff Buckley dies. This beautiful kid, all black hair and big eyes, this musician who can play anything, take you anywhere. This singer who sings like no one else, except maybe his dad. And he never wants to talk about him because he was never around. It should all be ahead of him. That's what everyone thinks. He's going to be Dylan or Springsteen or something weirder, way out beyond. Sometimes he feels like the perfect rock myth. All troubles and pain, all lovable flaws and vulnerability. Not bothered about money, just wants to play the stuff he wants to play. Only one proper finished album by the age of 30. The promise of more, but too much messing around. Like it's all a game, like there's no rush. Messing around with girls, leaving them, knowing how he makes them feel. Obsessed with death, this beautiful doomed boy. Writing about it, singing about it. Some of it never makes sense. Why he didn't do more when he could. All that talent and people willing him on. And he's almost fighting himself, like he wants success, but he doesn't. 
Why he was in the river that night, in his clothes, in the weeds and the murk and the undertow. But you care about him when you hear Jeff Buckley. You don't forget him, not the way he sounds. You fall into the myth and you keep going, listening and wondering where he came from, where he was going, whether it always had to be this way. Here's how he looks, Jeff, when you first see him. Short, only about five foot eight, black hair tucked behind his ears or squashed under a hat, white shirt, Doc Martens. Looks like he just got off the sofa. Looks like he just got out of bed. Good looking boy, skinny and pale. Makes people want to take him home and feed him up. He's got a soft voice, quite high, feminine. Usually a guitar with him, but not much else. A sort of deliberate cool, like he knows this is how guitar players are meant to be. But he's so natural at the rest of it, you can't complain. You play him a song and he can play it back straight away. Then he's playing it in a slightly different way, changing the rhythm, sticking a new guitar line in, taking the melody somewhere else. You play him a song and he's probably heard it before. He'll listen to anything, all the rock classics, then weird stuff for a kid from California. Pakistani religious singers, devotional stuff. He's got all these cassettes and a big tape deck he carries with him, like he has to have music on the whole time. He's always in at least two bands, like one isn't quite enough, like it'll trap him or contain him or something. And when he plays, he's all improvisation and looseness. He tells bad jokes between songs, does cover versions that are almost a piss take but end up somewhere holy instead, talks to the audience. Thing is, there is no audience, not a proper one. He's 22 and new in New York, and it's tiny bars and coffee shops. You don't go for Jeff. You go for a beer and a catch-up with your mate. And maybe you notice the skinny kid in the corner doing covers of Van Morrison and Elvis and Edith Piaf. And maybe you don't. There's this one place, an Irish bar called Shinay. The name means, that's it in Gaelic, and that's what you think when you walk in and see how small and cramped it is. That's it. It's in Manhattan in the East Village, ground level of a big old block. Through the door, four little tables on your right, a couple of longer ones on the left. You can almost touch the counter where they serve the coffee and rolling rock beer. There's a piano in the corner taking up half the space, and not much else. You can squeeze 40 people in, but often there's just five or six. And Jeff will be there with his guitar and amp, and he'll play from nine in the evening till midnight. People chatting, the coffee machine hissing and blowing steam. He does his covers and tells his bad jokes and sings. And it's when he sings that it all stops. The chatting, the hissing, the drinking. He's stupidly good at that guitar finds these strange chords, a dissonance that shouldn't work but sort of does, like the sting of whiskey, like the smoke of a spliff hitting your throat. But there's lots of good guitar players in New York. There's just no one else who sings like this. It can cover five octaves, eight notes in an octave times five, so 45 notes from the bottom of his voice to the top. Most of us have got two octaves, 
16 notes. So that's where he can go, and that's how he can do it. He does falsetto, reminds you of how Tom York from Radiohead will sound. Then he does this strange yodeling and screaming. He does the Punjabi devotional stuff borrowed off ancient Pakistani traditions. So, Jeff... He says when he sings, it's exactly halfway between laughing with joy and crying. But then he's full of great lines, this kid. He says he wants to dash himself on the rocks. He wants to burn away the film he thinks is settling on him. That's why he performs live, to do all that. So girls love him. The lines, the look, the doomed romantic chat. He says he sees himself like Robert Johnson, the blues legend who's meant to have sold his soul to the devil to get his licks. He says he wants to be a bard, a minstrel. He says he wants to be disorientated at least twice a week, find inspiration in random moments in meaningless things. It's all beautiful, but it's also not quite coming together, not so you can hear it. Everyone's buying the myth and people are taking a punt on the genius coming through. Clive Davis, big music producer, signed Billy Joel, Springsteen, Whitney Houston, offers him a million-dollar contract. Someone says, Clive's not stupid. He must know what he wants you to do. But no one else does. People keep saying, I don't know what this kid is. Is he rock or jazz or blues or soul? Because he's all of these things, but none of them. He lives in a cheap little apartment on the Lower East Side, almost nothing in it, just a futon to sleep on, purple candles to light it. His stereo and his piles of tapes, a tiny kitchen with dirty dishes, strange Indian instruments thrown in the corner. Someone visits and says, it's like he could lay everything he owns in a blanket, tie it to a stick and be off. It doesn't make sense. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, it's Tom Fordyce here. I'm one of the writers on Death of a Rockstar, and I do hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. Now, we all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people I wrote about for this series absolutely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Rockstar listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash rockstarpod. That's betterhelp.com slash rockstarpod. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Where do you find the answers to Jeff Buckley? Maybe in where he's from, 
maybe in who stays around and who leaves. His mum is 18 when he's born, his dad's already left. Tim Buckley's famous, but not famous. A musician who plays guitar and sings across these crazy octaves. A cult hero. Can't sell records, but the ones who do buy them go all obsessive about him. Yeah, sounds familiar. So, Jeff's not Jeff when he's a kid. He's Scott Moorhead, his stepdad's surname, his own middle name. The two of them, this half a family, keep moving around, looking for work, looking for love. 19 different cities when he's a kid, four different high schools. His mum marries a car mechanic who likes rock music. He listens to Led Zepp, Chicago, plenty of Beatles. Jeff listens, absorbs it. And his dad is always there, but never around. When Jeff's six, his mum puts on one of Tim's records for the first time. When he's eight, his dad invites him over for the Easter holidays. He stays for a week and then never sees him again. Tim Buckley dies with nothing but a guitar, an amp and a load of debts. No hit singles, no big albums, a heroin overdose in his sleep, no fuss. I knew him for a total of nine days. That's what Jeff will say later. He never wrote, he never called. That's what he'll tell people. But he takes his surname after all that, becomes a Buckley, yet says, I'm only truly happy on stage because I can forget my own name. When someone in the audience shouts out for one of Tim's songs, he screams back at them. It's all conflict and confusion. Jeff can do an almost perfect impersonation of his dad. He can sing like him if he wants. There's a tribute concert to him in New York. The gig's called Greetings from Tim Buckley, something Jeff never had. Yet he performs there and does his dad's songs. Maybe that's where the obsession with death comes from, the flaws and vulnerability, the slack people cut him when he messes them around. A friend says, you're like a cat in this city. You'll sleep anywhere. You connect with people when you have to. You can charm them, make them feel special. And when you want, you push them away. When you've got what you need, they can't touch you. You move on and everyone misses you. Everyone feels the warmth where you've been. There's a little live album they release. Jeff playing at the Shinnay. All his covers and chat between songs. But now he's signed to Columbia, not to Clive Davis, but another massive label, a big corporation. He needs more. There's lyrics, always lyrics. He carries a notebook with him all the time, skull and crossbones drawn on the cover, thoughts and dreams and scraps of stuff written inside in tiny black handwriting. There's only three songs he's written on his own, but there's a few he's worked on with others. And there's the cover versions, because there's always covers with Jeff. And that's how the album comes together the one actual studio record he'll ever make. He can play drums, bass, piano and all the rest on his own, but he gets a band together at the last minute and heads up to Woodstock, out in the sticks, all quiet nights and long days. It's different from the start, this album. The rhythms feel all disconcerting, songs that start and stop, 
that march and waltz and then slam in hard. There's heavy guitars and soft strings, little melodic hooks and then long jams where it's like he's trying to make you uncomfortable, like the whiskey, like the spliffs. In the studio, it's like three bands in one. There's big drums and loud amps, pure rock setup. There's a corner with an acoustic guitar for a folk gig. And then there's a canvas lean-to tent off to the side. That's where Jeff goes when he's writing his lyrics. Very Jeff. And it sort of works, this record they call Grace. The title track, another one called So Real, a hook in the chorus and then a load of stuff that's rock and jazz and messing around too. But there's one song no one forgets. Because it's Jeff. It's not just a cover. It's a cover of a cover. You hear Leonard Cohen do Hallelujah, the original, and you hardly recognise it. It's a heavy, slow thing with a keyboard and a fat bass and a big choir. Then you hear John Cale's cover off a Leonard Cohen tribute album. You know, John Cale started in Wales, ended up in New York and the Velvet Underground with Lou Reed and Andy Warhol hanging around. Cale once said he'd taken most of the available drugs in the United States of America. That's a Buckley kind of doomy romantic vibe. And it's Cale's version that Jeff borrows. No choirs, much more sparse, much more strung out. And you hear this new cover, and it's like Jeff in a concentrated little dose. Like he's focused, like he's found out who he is. Shimmering guitars, old and ancient, but new and shiny too. Up and down the octaves, all natural drama and vulnerability. Like a kid standing alone on an altar like a man going up to heaven. It's a mix of five different takes, but it sounds complete, polished and raw at the same time. All golden shimmer like the rush of heroin, like a dream on a summer's afternoon. But what does the world think? The world doesn't know what to think. It's August 1994. The US is still in the arse end of grunge, still listening to Nirvana and all the bands who are trying to sound like Nirvana but aren't as good. Britain's all happy house and the first rumblings of Britpop. The album reviews are mixed, confused. Rolling Stone gives it three stars out of five, says Jeff sounds like he doesn't know what he wants to be. It doesn't break into the top 30 albums in the UK. No one's even sure about the cover photo. He's wearing what he calls his Judy Garland jacket, gold sequins and sparkle. His black hair is brushed back, a bit falling over his face. His left hand's holding tight to an old silver mic, like one Elvis might have used. His eyes are in shadow. Someone at the record company complains he looks like Adam Ant. Someone else says he looks like a lounge singer. Jeff says, it looks like I'm listening to music, lost in it. And that's what he wants, always. And the title? He says, grace is the thing that stops you reaching for the gun too quickly. Grace is the thing that keeps you alive. They tour the album and it sells slowly, but it sells. 50,000 copies globally, a cult thing. 
then a few more as word gets round. A slow burner, one you play and then play again, finding new corners, fresh meanings. When you love Jeff, you really love him. You feel like he's connecting straight to you, like he knows how you feel. When they play live on a long tour around Europe, around North America, Hallelujah always gets them. The record company won it as a Christmas single, but Jeff doesn't really see himself as a Christmas single kind of guy. He'll play it at gigs, but he'll also play a 25-minute jam that makes everyone go to the bar or outside for a smoke. Sometimes inspiration comes at random moments in meaningless things. Sometimes it just doesn't. The adorations there from girls, from other pale boys who love their guitars and big quotes. People still want to take him home. There's just more of them. He's named as one of People magazine's 50 most beautiful people in the world. One of those made-up lists that let you stick lots of famous stars on your cover, fill it with cool photos. George Clooney's in there, Liz Hurley and Brad Pitt. And that's not Jeff, not how he sees himself. So he drinks, messes about, like he's fighting himself, like he wants success, but he doesn't. He turns up three hours late for a meeting with his record company. He's sleepy, smiling, eyes half shut, pupils like pinpricks. You see it, and you know, that smack. The same thing killed his dad. He says he's only messing around, snorting it, not injecting. Says the next record is gonna be the greatest album ever. Comes out with another classic Jeff Buckley line. I wanna work so hard, everything off me burns away like the chemical in a match. People need this album. The record company, his band, his manager. There's a lot of money being spent for not a lot of money coming in. They stick him in a rented house in the Hamptons, far from New York and its darkness and temptations. He stays there three months, smoking weed, messing with his guitar pedals, writing, nothing. $25,000, and all they get is a few long jams, the stuff that sends you to the bar. He jokes about it with his manager. They have a phrase to describe how they work, all these leaps of faith. They say, you did pack a parachute, right? He also says something in an interview. I want to leave this world behind a little so I can see it's bigger and I haven't left it at all. He's got Jimmy Page and Robert Plant turning up at his gigs, but there's no new songs to play them. Just drinking and puking and all the cliches that he's not meant to be. He's 30 years old now. That's late to still be messing. The world doesn't wait for you forever. Shinne shut down. The Lower East Village is getting posh and pricey. So he moves, down to Memphis, to the banks of the Mississippi. Cheaper, warmer, easier. He rents a little house in a nothing part of town. Nothing much in there either. A sofa, single bed, milk crate for a table. He gets a bike. Cycles round doing what he wants, getting Vietnamese takeaways. He plays in a little local bar, cycles to the local zoo, gets obsessed with the butterfly house, wanders round making notes in his little book with the skull and crossbones on it. He's all about the moment, Jeff. Disorientated twice a week? He's disorientated every day. 
He grows the grass long in his little front yard so he can lie in it and stare up at the blue sky, the nighttime stars. A friend comes over, finds him lying in a cold bath, naked, writing lyrics. He's chewed his pen so much there's red ink all down his face, red spreading out in the cold water. And the friend shivers and says, Come on, Jeff, let's get out of here. And so it comes to this warm day in late May, in a nothing part of Memphis, down by the Mississippi. Jeff's late up, sticks on his usual look, baggy black tourers, white t-shirt, boots. His mate's over again, sort of part-time roadie, part-time hairdresser, fair bit younger than Jeff, so does what Jeff wants, follows in his slow slipstream. Jeff's been even more vague. They go to the supermarket and he takes loads of things off the shelf, sticks them in a trolley and puts them all back. The only thing he buys is a packet of dog biscuits. He doesn't have a dog. They're meant to be rehearsing for this new album that isn't happening yet, so they get in their rented truck and decide to drive over to the rehearsal room. Thing is, Jeff can't remember where it is, so he drives to the bar where he plays, thinks he'll ask them the way. It's shut, but he's okay. Spots an old sofa abandoned in the street, says it's perfect for his little house. It's late now, almost nine at night. It gets dark just after eight in Memphis at this time of year. It's time for another bar, or food, or home. They don't do any of those things. Jeff's all about the now, the adventure, the random. So he looks at his friend and says, come on, let's go down the river. Wolf River's not the proper Mississippi. It's like a little dog's leg off it, almost a harbour. It's not beautiful down there. It's industrial. It's dirty. Dark. It's lonely. They park up the truck, bring out the tape deck, put it on the bank. No one swims here. It's full of weeds and rubbish. The water's oily, swirling. Jeff takes his coat off and walks backwards into the water. Like it's a joke, like he just wants to get a reaction, being random. His mate's putting the tunes on. Jeff takes off his coat, throws it ashore, flops onto his back and starts doing bad backstroke, listening to the tunes, floating around, singing. No light overhead, no one around. There's a buzz of a couple of small boats. His mate shouts, tells Jeff to look out. Jeff swims out further, lets them pass. Now he's singing his own tunes. He's singing Whole Lot of Love by Led Zepp. Out in the dark river, under the dark sky. A bigger noise, coming the other way up the river. A tugboat, pushing the water out the way. The mate shouts out again, sees the boat chug by, sees the big bow wave it's pushing out, coming across the river towards him. Now the water's rushing halfway up the bank. The mate runs over to the tape deck, lifts it out of the way, and he turns back to the river. And there's nothing. Swirling water, dark water, nothing else. He waits, he shouts, he thinks it's a joke, thinks, Jeff's gone under, he'll come up laughing. Thinks, maybe he sneaked ashore, will come up behind me all wet and big eyes and say, come on, let's get out of here. Nothing. 
what's it like to drown? Lonely. Desperate. The weight on you. All the time. A silence when it comes. All that happens afterwards. All the panic. The calls to 911. The helicopters overhead. The coast guards in the water. None of it changes any of that. Not the first reports that go out saying Jeff Buckley is missing. Not Bono playing Alleluia at a U2 show. Not the hope, always there, that it's Jeff being Jeff. That he'll be back late, like he's been messing about, like he's just got out of bed. Six days when everyone knows, but no one wants to believe. And then two passengers on a cruise boat going down the river spot something wedged under some branches by the bank. A body being brought ashore in black baggy trousers and a white t-shirt and black boots. You want to make sense of it. Everyone does. The record sells now and the myth grows. This beautiful doomed boy, this singer who sings like no one else, except maybe his dad. All troubles and pain, all lovable flaws and vulnerability. You fall into the myth and you keep going, listening and wondering where he came from, where he was going, whether it always had to be this way. This episode of Death of a Rockstar was written by Tom Fordyce and performed by me, Emma Clark. It was edited by Charlie Frost. For research, we read lots of books, including From Hallelujah to The Last Goodbye by Dave Laurie, Jeff Buckley, The Official Journals, and A Pure Drop by Jeff Apter. We watched films including Everybody Here Wants You and Amazing Grace. The music we used in this episode is from our partners at BMG Production Music. You want to hear some Jeff? Start with So Real, the song with hooks and messiness too. Try The Last Goodbye because that's one everyone falls for. And it has to be Alleluia. If you've heard it, you know. If you haven't, you will. And while you're here, if you've enjoyed this episode, we have a favour to ask. If you use the Apple Podcast app, it'd mean a lot if you could leave us a nice review. If you use Spotify, then we put together a playlist on there with all our episodes and music recommendations too. Follow that, as it'll help grow our series and allow us to make more episodes too. And if this is your first Rockstar episode, go and find the ones about Amy Winehouse or Kirsty McColl. We'll have a new episode for you next Thursday, and that one will be about Prince. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal, the man, to Fat Mike from No Effects and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, 
Peer pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media podcast network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living. And every week, I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast. A songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and -and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, And I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday.